Chapter 14 Tom and Reginald went to school within two years of each other, and this produced an unexpected renaissance within the Spencer household. It was not immediate, but it was unmistakable. Two weeks after Tom went away to All Souls, Ruth came down for breakfast. Quentin glanced up from his newspaper, stunned. At first he thought that she might be sleepwalking. It had not happened for, what, eight years? Catherine, at Tom's request, had been kept on as a cook, and she handled it magnificently. "'Good morning, Ruth,' she said with great imperturbability. "'Are you hungry?' "'I am,' Ruth murmured, touching her throat. "'I really am.' Two eggs,' smiled Quentin. "'Eggs sunny side up, one piece of brown toast, unbuttered.' Ruth smiled faintly and sat down. Quentin sat still, afraid to speak of startling her back upstairs to her dark nest. They ate in silence. Quentin lowered the newspaper from time to time, just a shade, to watch his wife eat. Her cheeks colored slightly, and he realized she was aware of his stare and raised his paper again very slowly. She went back to bed after breakfast, but gradually, intermittently, she began to appear more often, like a ghost straining for corporeality. Something was stirring in her heart. Some sort of light was breaking over her exhausted inner armies. Not a healing, not quite, but a sort of armistice. Quentin had not put aside his political aspirations, but they had been delayed. The by-election he had hoped to run in had come and gone while he was still paralyzed by his wife's hostility. She had agreed to refrain from proclaiming her beliefs, but he had had the following conversation with the Conservative Party head. "'Well,' said Mr. Watkins, who was tall and thin and had a close-cropped sheen of silver hair, "'You possess unremarkable credentials, having had no parliamentary experience, no close affiliation with the Conservative Party, and scant financial resources.' However, these are not utterly insurmountable insofar as a man with ability, drive, and oratorical power can position himself as the outsider who can ride into town and clean things up. But to pursue the American metaphor, perhaps beyond good taste, you cannot do this without a credible posse. And my inquiries have led me to the understanding that you are in possession of a rather singular wife. I have talked with Ruth, said Quentin stressing her name in the hopes of transforming her from crippling hibiscus to fallible human being, and she fully supports my desire to serve my country. No doubt, said Mr. Watkins dryly. Yet we have before us several possible candidates, and their wives have performed every kind of social service, from running the Red Cross to sitting on means test committees to running political seminars explaining why the League of Nations failed to check Japanese aggression in Manchuria to our understandably confused constituents. Whether we like it or not, a man is judged by the company he keeps. When offered a candidate with a shut-in wife, voters might legitimately question the man's ability to keep a steady focus on the job. It is the contention of the Conservative Party that the current decade will bring within it grave dangers, and it will require a tenaciously steady hand at the tiller. By all appearances, and with all due respect, you are not that man. 
It was a kindness to even receive that depth of explanation, Quentin knew, and did not press the issue. Things changed, however, with Ruth's unexpected renaissance. Though the local by-election had come and gone, it was not at all unusual for a candidate to offer himself to a foreign borough, and so Quentin began to follow the health and prospects of those in office with a grim, silent dedication. All I need is for just one of these old buzzards to fall from the limb, and all will come to fruition. It finally happened, when Reginald was in his third year and Tom in his first. Early 1931, when Ramsay MacDonald was campaigning, the incumbent for Hillington died in office. There was a rush to fill the empty seat. Quentin returned to the office of Mr. Watkins with Ruth in tow, and after extensive questioning of Quentin's platform, his knowledge of parliamentary procedure, conservative doctrine, his personal habits, and, last but not least, his wife's stability, Quentin was accepted as the conservative candidate for Hillington. What got him the candidacy was his platform of drawing up the plank. He rejected unlimited free trade and argued that England should focus on retaining the wealth of the empire through preferential trade policies among the dominions. He also advocated the expansion of benefits being paid out to the unemployed. His most successful speech was delivered to the British Society of Jewellers, and it went thus. My dear friends, the time has come for us to admit to ourselves that the growing pendulum of extremism must be stopped by finding the mature and difficult middle way. Over the past 15 years, grave threats have arisen, threats arrayed against all the great and liberal institutions of the British Empire. In 1917, the institution of communism in Russia created a force which is bent on destabilizing our way of life. In 1922, fascism was brought into existence in Italy. Now we find that we are spiraling into a depression the likes of which the world has never seen before. Many millions of able-bodied men are wandering the streets, unable to provide for their families, unable to advance in their trades, and it is my firm belief that a most precious social contract is being broken. Capitalism, untrammeled capitalism, has been tried and found wanting. The danger of economic destabilization is all too clear. Communism in Germany, which was a grave threat in 1919, almost won in 1923, during the time of catastrophic inflation. We have seen the weakening of democracy in Germany's Weimar Republic and the consequent growth of radical elements. National socialists, communists and fascists fight daily in the streets. Turning closer to home, we find, across the channel, a great republic whose democratic ideals are in full retreat. France has suffered under a succession of unstable governments, and the radical left has joined under a united front and advocates the nationalization of key industries, the abolition of the exclusive right to property, and, in the absence of strong and opposing leadership, and due to growing social and financial desperation, is turning to violence to achieve its aims. So as we scan Europe, noting its agonies and convulsions, what should our approach to our own island be? Well, I think that we have failed large elements of our society, and if we do not appease those elements, we shall not long retain our seats of influence. Capitalism causes swings too wild to allow society to settle into that stability which is the only rock upon which true growth can be founded. Socialism Communism and fascism offend our sensibilities too much. They curtail the rights of the individual too greatly 
to ever be placidly accepted in England. Thus we must recoil from all extremities and soothe the furrowed brows of our desperate brothers. By taking the best ideas from all camps, we diffuse the radicals, stabilize society, and in my view, the society which results will be more just, more fair, and more stable. From socialism, we take the redistribution of income, as Shakespeare so nobly states in King Lear, that distribution should undo excess, and each man have enough. From communism, we take the responsibility of all for all, for without a doubt, as the rise of the dictator nations has shown, we rise or fall as one. From fascism, we take national pride, an enduring faith in the nobility of our national institutions. Thus, for our platform. Yet you might ask, what of you, Quentin Spencer? What do you bring to this table? For it would not be enough to say that I advocate a combination of all that is good and fine in what we see around us without adding something of my own to the mix. I know that there are men in this very hall who fought in the Great War and are not now gazing with equanimity on the European situation. There are women here who lost their nearest and dearest to that terrible conflagration. We have long noted the instabilities in Germany, and it is to this subject that I wish to turn to now. I wish to state openly tonight, before you all, that I consider Germany to be laboring under an unjust peace. The framers of the Peace Treaty of Versailles, fresh from the slaughter of four long years, had in their hearts no small portion of vengeance. Who can blame them? It was a horror without precedence in human history. Yet now, twelve years after the close of that terrible war, we may be in a position to see things more clearly. The German monarchy has been disposed of. Germany has signed the Treaty of Locarno guaranteeing the Western borders. She has retained her commitment to liberal democracy, despite all the shocks and upheavals she experienced throughout the last decade, through near-revolution, economic collapse, the current depression we all labor under, and social dislocation of every conceivable kind. She has been, for the past five years, a full member of the League of Nations. She has been paying her reparations. She is currently enmeshed with the victorious powers of 1918 in complex negotiations for comprehensive disarmament. It is, I submit, quite unjust to continue to treat her as a pariah among civilized nations. Germany will never be stable until she is equal. Let us not forget that we have already, in 1925, recognized that the Treaty of Versailles is not written in stone. Some of the more odious provisions in that treaty have already been done away with. And let us not also forget that our unilateral imposition of German disarmament was as we expressly pointed out at the time, a mere prequel to the disarmament of the victorious Allied powers. Now, more than a decade later, Germany, in my view, has every right to say to us, England and France, you promised that you would disarm, yet you have not. Why is that? Well, we say, we have an empire to maintain, which was swollen by our confiscation of German overseas territories and their incorporation into our own holdings. Yet... It does not hold water, my friends. We retain the right to arm, despite our promises to the contrary, while denying that same right to Germany. Is it any wonder, then, that discontent still rages through that country? 
a country we have stripped of its defence, a country which still lies prostrate in its defeat so many years after the fact, a country to whom we promised our own disarmament, which we have not done. No. It is my belief that we need to raise Germany from the humiliations imposed by the vengeance of our fathers. It is my belief that the framers of Versailles did not expect that their restrictions would hold forth without change from 1919 until the end of time. We have agreed that Versailles is open to change. So let us put our trust back in Germany, which has proven its stability throughout the awful decade of the 1920s. Let us raise a proud people back to a position of equality. Let us seek to find a solution to the just complaints of Germany. The time for vengeance and petty divisions is past. Europe is a single land, and we are a part of it. We must all rise or fall together. Quentin paused here through the catcalls of coward and never again, and Germany has not changed. After a time, he held up his hands and spoke once more. And, my friends, lest any think that this is mere rank idealism, let us look at one other significant, salient fact. The horrors of the last war, grave as they were, would be far surpassed by another war of its magnitude. For a new and terrible weapon has entered into the hands of man. The new airplane bomber has the capacity to transcend national boundaries as if they did not exist. There is no counter-defense the bombers will always get through. Civilian cities would lie in flames under their terrible wings. It has been estimated that half a million people would die in the first day of the next war. What madness could we conceive taking hold of the German people to imagine that they would pursue a war of aggression which would result in the utter destruction of Christian civilization? No. The Germans care for their lives, their cultures, and their children as much as we do, and would never allow their leaders to pursue such madness or follow them into a battle which would be the end of us all. The last war has been called the Great War, the war to end war, and it is indubitably so. For the next war would be nothing less than a war to end mankind. I stand here before you to say that the identification and alleviation of German discontent is the only way that such utter destruction can be averted. If I am elected, I will work with every fiber of my being to ensure that such a conflagration will never come to pass. Chapter 15 The first Christmas break, Tom, Reginald, Ruth, and Quentin sat in the living room. Quentin and Reginald were smoking. Tom drank water almost by the bucket but was afraid to leave the room for fear that his mother would be lost in the darkness of their thoughts. Ruth sat and argued with an unstable vivacity which was a painful contrast to her earlier lassitude. "'But here's the thing,' said Reginald, lighting another cigarette. This habit lasted only two and a half months. "'Who is to say that Russia, the new Russia, Soviet Russia, is not the greatest paradise on earth, where all the essential problems of humanity and society have been solved?' It is my firm belief, said Quentin, easing and creaking in his leather chair, that there is a great deal which can be learned from the Russian experiment. Exactly, cried Reginald, then frowned. Well, not exactly, for that word also has its problems. 
But if everything is perfect in Russia, said Tom, why don't we just adopt their society? Well, there are two answers to that, said Reginald. First, the powers that be in England can scarcely be expected to cheer a society which would depose them. And second, there is a kind of inertia to society, especially societies which, like ours, have arisen not through planning, but through a kind of historical gradualism. It's the difference between, in law, a constitution like America's versus what we have in England, which is a kind of common law of precedence. We hate and fear the Russian model, not because it's bad, but because it's different. People are always suspicious of new things. Quentin grunted. Well, insofar as this is an entirely theoretical discussion, I would say that I like certain aspects of the communist model, but I would never be able to advocate them within this country, because it is too foreign to the continuity of our institutions, and because our institutions, the aristocracy, the church, parliament, are so entrenched, it would take a revolution of the most brutal nature to overthrow them. Yet that may not also be for the worst, said Reginald, his cheeks flushed. It is the oldest question in the world, the good of the many versus the good of the few. Bertrand Russell says, if it could be proven that the deaths of a million Jews could bring about universal peace and harmony, it would be hard to argue against it. But that makes no sense, cried Ruth, making them all jump. It still surprised them all that she was no longer confined to her room. I mean, how could the death of a million people bring peace? It's theoretical, mother, said Reginald heavily. The question is, what are we willing to sacrifice to improve society? For it has to be said that our lot are not doing so well just at present. We have, what, five million unemployed? A government teetering on the edge of bankruptcy? While in Russia they have full employment, free medical care, superior education, no social classes, no economic instability. Everything is planned from the top down and no one goes without Compared to the brutal instability of late capitalism, there is something to be said for that. I don't say that I accept it all, just that there is something to be said for it. Oh, Reginald, you are still the same, snapped Ruth. You can't draw breath without attacking oxygen. You live for the right to criticize your own government, which is not allowed in Russia. Ah, but how do we know that? Perhaps everyone is allowed to criticize the government in Russia, but no one does because they have nothing to complain about. How do you know that? demanded his mother. I'm not saying that I do know that. I'm saying that it might be so. So what is the point of saying it? Rank conjecture? Quentin held up hand. Ruth, please. All the boy is saying is that we shouldn't assume things about a foreign society or judge it by our own standards. They killed the Tsar, murmured Tom. What? demanded Reginald. Speak up. They killed the Tsar and his family. The revolution was founded on murder. "'So is the reign of the Tsar,' snapped Reginald. "'What of it?' "'They also killed the Mensheviks and the Kuleks, hundreds of thousands of them. "'Do you have any proof of that? "'Have you seen the bodies? "'Did you see the executions? "'No. "'And even if you have incontrovertible proof of all these allegations, "'what would it matter? "'Perhaps communism is the perfect system after all, "'and we have just been stumbling around in the dark. "'If so, then the deaths of thousands of people, millions even, "'who oppose the creation of universal justice is entirely understandable.' Quentin chuckled. Steady on, Reggie. But we judge all these things while having no knowledge of the facts, cried Reginald, thumping a fist into an open hand. Why do you need facts? demanded Ruth, her voice shrill. Why? They murder. They execute. Thousands. Millions. They don't care. Is it murder if they are defending themselves? cried Reginald. 
If they have a just society being undermined by subversives, by those who had power in the old world and who will do anything to bring it back, we outlaw criminals. The criminals try to overthrow the police. Are the police not allowed to defend themselves, to defend justice? But Reginald, protested Tom, the Russian citizen has no freedom. Really? And what is meant by that? Freedom. They can't choose their own jobs. Everyone is paid the same. It doesn't look like they have freedom of the press. You know, actually replied Reginald icily, I must confess that I do not know. I do know that we group certain economic and political liberties under the general rubric freedom, but I do not know that different freedoms are denied to the average Russian. Let's see. They have freedom of the press, but 99% of the population can't read or write. He clapped his hands sardonically. Wonderful. Or let's say they have freedom of association, but they never leave their village. Oh, or they can choose any occupation they please, as long as it's impoverished farmer, or we give them capitalism and property rights, which gives them the freedom to join the five million unemployed, like workers in this country. Don't you see what a ridiculous argument you're making? You're just saying, I like these rights, without realizing that they don't apply to a place like Russia. So you think we should all become communists? cried Ruth. No, no. I'm just saying that we have certain problems, and perhaps they have certain problems and that we cannot say that our solutions are the best always, everywhere and forever. I mean, they just evolved here. We can't grow oranges in Shropshire, and we can't transplant democratic capitalism to Russia. It's nothing but undergraduate vanity, cried Ruth, turning to her younger son, her eyes softening. Tell me that you don't think this way, Tom. Tom sighed, taking another drink of water. No, I don't think that way, he paused. I should hate to live in Russia. I don't think that the end justifies the means. Murder only begets murder. So you don't believe in defense against invaders? Just roll over. Hold up, Reggie. There's a difference between attack and defense. I mean, the Tsar never threatened any of the revolutionaries personally, but they killed him anyway. They killed him for the sake of the proletariat. Sure, I know. I know. But, but I could say that too. I mean, anyone could. Did the poor ask Lenin to liberate them? They were all intellectuals. They have this idea, this big idea, and everyone has to fit inside that. And anyone who doesn't fit has to be cut down. No, I don't like it at all. I think you should study the world and then develop theories. I don't think you should have a theory and then force the world to fit into it. It's brutal, messy, and, if you're wrong, never-ending. Well, that's wonderful, sneered Reginald. So you believe that no one should do anything but tinker with what is. Very brave, very progressive, you are an old, old man. All right, said Quentin, holding up his hand. It's almost time for dinner, said Ruth. Reginald, will you join us in our repast of food ripped from the hands of the proletariat? Stop it, Ruth, said Quentin. She rose up in her chair, her whole body taut with rebellion, then sank back down, her eyes averted. Lads, said Quentin slowly, there's something we have to talk about before dinner. He took a deep breath. All right. The crash of 29. Well, my lads, it has just wiped us out completely. There was silence in the room. Tom frowned. Then his face broke into a scant, sad smile. Well, we... We're just talking about the poor. Shut up, Tom, said Reginald, leaning forward in his chair. Father, what do you mean? What are the actual implications? 
It's your school. It's paid until the end of the year. But after that, what? Said Tom, there's nothing left to recover with? Quentin shook his head. Sorry, I got out just ahead of the margin calls, which would have utterly destroyed us. We have enough for just under a year. I shall have to cast my net very wide to prosper after that. Reginald began breathing deeply through his nose. Ruth raised her feet from the floor as if a sudden flood were rising and tucked them under her. So, father, said Reginald, you're saying that the money is gone and we shall just have to fend for ourselves. You're saying that there was precious little purpose to all the endless swatting I have done over the past ten years. That's just not so. There are other universities which would welcome an all-souls man. And all my contacts? Shall I be allowed to transfer them as well? My future? Everyone I am supposed to know to, to get ahead? And I am to present myself to the foreign office with some crayon-scrawled degree from a local hack factory? I shall be lucky to be allowed to file, Reginald. He leapt to his feet. And the purpose of filling my head with ambitious dreams, father? Remind me again the point of that? Reginald, you can be anything you want. Well, I suppose that's true, unless the family fortune gets flushed down the loo by... by... Tell me this, father. When did you know? If you take that tone with me, snarled Quentin, I shall throw you from this house myself. Quentin! cried Ruth. Oh. Dear father, said Reginald, leaning forward, his shadow scaling the wall behind him. Are you threatening me? I mean, really? How exactly are you expecting to compel my obedience in the absence of anything to offer me? You obey me because I am your father, thundered Quentin, jabbing a blunt finger up from his chair. I see, said Reginald. I obey you because you are my father. Yet as my father, you can be expected to have certain responsibilities, one of which is to provide for my education, or, at the very least, to complete on the commitments which you made to me. Reginald, cried Ruth, this affects Tom as well. Reginald whirled on her. Well, Tom may take this lying down if he so chooses. It would not be out of character. But not I. I expect those around me to honor their commitments, and I secured a promise from you, father, so what is to be done? Tom raised his hand. If it helps, I would rather not go back. It would seem that in Reginald's year you were taught to be both a communist and a hateful narcissist. Reginald smiled. Well, Tommy, it would scarcely be surprising if you chose to throw up your education. The last man in the race often wants out of the competition. Now, father, said Reginald, turning to Quentin, I am sure that you have some other solutions than sorry, boys, enjoy your last year. Quentin paused, his lips compressing into little white worms. Though you have put me in no mood to help you, I shall. There are a number of scholarships which would allow you to continue your studies. Scholarships? repeated Reginald, his voice hollow with shock. My godfather, that is beyond pathetic. Do you know that the root of the word is Greek for I don't belong here? We all pity such misshapen creatures like Tom's little friend Hart, with their little mining accents and dropped H's and nod-nodding servility. "'Scholarships mark you as a chimera, a mutant, an ape with the ability to juggle.' "'Quentin shrugged tightly. "'Well, you have the accent, if that's what concerns you. "'Yes, but that... "'Scholarships also, they make you an academic toady. "'All your education consists of is parroting back whatever fashionable thought will get you the most marks.' "'Tom murmured, which you do anyway.' "'And,' continued Reginald, ignoring his brother, 
There is also the disgrace of having your family's fortunes laid bare. You have to forego all the outings you were used to, outings which develop the kind of contacts which make university worthwhile. I will come at knowing nothing but longer words for ideas I already had. Nothing except the web of friends which can propel you up. Webs don't propel, said Tom. Ruth smiled. But now, oh, now I shall be known as the po-faced boy whose family fell on hard times. But through dint of his labor managed to hang on as if he were still respectable to a station that his father's improvidence has now barred him from forever. Through some violent inner effort, Quentin did not reply to his son's taunt. Ruth was pale. Tom's face flushed. Reginald stood over them, poised like some striking snake, then turned and charged from the room and from the house. They sat in silence, listening to the roar as the motor car started and then the scrabble of gravel as Reginald roared off down the front road. Quentin and Ruth exchanged glances, which surprised and pleased Tom, since this was most rare. Well... "'The boy has spirit,' said Quentin, finally managing a smile. "'He has spirit, but I have no appetite.' He got up and left the room. Ruth stared at Tom expectantly, and he suddenly felt irritated. "'How are you, Tom?' "'All... all right. "'It's a shock.' But even as Tom spoke, he realized that it wasn't. Not really. You can get a scholarship if you apply yourself. You are brighter than Reginald. You don't realize this. You don't understand. You should. He needs you more than you need him. Tom shuddered. Every now and then a great white light opened up from his mother's forehead, illuminating everything too brightly, giving his eyes no time to adjust. And the tears which followed were not of release, but the pain of the sudden glare. Chapter 16 Tom and Reginald did not overlap much during their university years. However, they did share one friend in common. Klaus Heppner was beyond gorgeous. He was a lithe, blonde man of 21, with an almost perfectly formed head. He had a staggering intelligence which was stirred almost lazily by argument and seemed to rise and sway on wide hind legs, sniffing slowly, then striking down its opponents with casually brutal humor. Tom was drawn to him because of his physical perfection. Klaus was excellent at almost every sport. Tom loved especially to play tennis with him because Klaus was so good that beating him made Tom's heart throb with joy. There was something about Klaus, that Tom wanted to beat, something he knew that could never be beaten by a desire to beat it. Reginald was drawn to Klaus by a similar desire in reverse. They played chess together, but Reginald was always vaguely disappointed on the rare occasions when he beat Klaus. It was like a monk disproving a proof of God. He won, but he lost as well. No one could ever be quite themselves around Klaus. First, there was his Germanic physical perfection, the knife-edge jawline, the perfect tanned skin, the straight nose, noble brow, long blonde hair, and white square teeth. Long before the phrase master race came into common disdain, it rose unbidden into the minds of the young British students who felt their own thin chests, stringy calves, and jagged teeth more keenly 
in the face of this young Teutonic god. Klaus was not vain. He did not preen or suck his cheeks in against his teeth. He dressed casually, simply. He did not date. In fact, those with deep sensitivities felt their way to something odd about Klaus. He was so beautiful that it was impossible not to perceive his sexuality as ambiguous. Some men are framed to attract women, but not men. Others men, but not women. Klaus was made to attract both, but he was fundamentally uninterested in sex. He liked to joke about it. He enjoyed stories of sexual escapades, but he himself was never really roused to pursue or to acquiesce to being pursued, which was depressingly frequent. Reginald was reminded of Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen, whose perceived celibacy was one source of her great power. Tom was reminded of a Reformation Protestant priest, which was probably more accurate. Klaus drove his teachers to distraction. By the time he was 19, he could translate Latin to Greek just by glancing from page to page. His memory was prodigious. His argumentative skills were virtually flawless. His combination of Latin, Greek, and page-for-page memorization of the Bible rendered him almost unbeatable in theological debates. He could take almost any side in any argument and win it. He was almost impossible to pin down. If assailed on logic, he would shift to a critique of his opponent's etymology. If etymology was the topic, he would switch to philosophy, casually breaking the link between language and reality. If criticized philosophically, he would argue that certainty was impossible. His house of knowledge was a heavily rippled castle of mirrors. Everyone came at him confidently and was spat out, feeling that all their prior beliefs were mere unthinking prejudice. This habit drove Tom nearly insane. Tom, perhaps because of his deep emotional connection to Catherine as a child, possessed a strong bedrock of Anglo-Saxon pragmatism. Klaus's airy language and slithery traps could not be escaped, not by any of the powers Tom at that time possessed, but he simply refused to accept them. Tom could be arguing with Klaus, noticed that he was suddenly neck-deep in quicksand, but would simply take a breath and carry on. Bah, these traps are all illusions. Even if I do not know how to break the illusions, I will carry on regardless, for my heart tells me that you are false. Well, false was too strong. Of course, there was something maddening about Klaus. To be able to so casually destroy the foundations of rational knowledge, yet to pursue knowledge in a university, and an English university at that, which retained vestiges of Locke's rationalism, seemed oddly perverse. None could find the root of this oddness, but it was there nonetheless. Trying to figure out why and how Klaus was wrong was the quest of many an undergraduate, and they all broke themselves on his rocks and brought that breaking back to their homes and spread it further. There were many things about Reginald which were hateful to Tom, but his brother had redeeming attributes as well. In the mad academic scramble for scholarships which followed Quentin's announcement, Reginald, for all his spiteful rage, realized that 1931 would be no time to be out of school and looking for work. Reginald did try to help Tom. Tom's central problem was that he could not, at any deep level, quite get any of the modern philosophies. The three most influential modern thinkers, Hegel, Kant, Marx, 
were completely beyond him. He tried over and over, and Klaus helped as well, for Hegel and Kant in particular were his specialties. But the ideas never took root in him. There was some idea that was missing, some premise he could not accept. It's not a matter of intelligence, Klaus said, after spending two late-night hours trying to get Tom to understand all the meanings behind the word teleology. Your Locke and Aristotle are beyond reproach. Tom was so frustrated that he was almost in tears. They make sense, he said, rubbing his eyes. Klaus shrugged. Of course, you have some sort of affinity for them, but a truly liberal education requires that you master what does not come naturally. Otherwise, it would just be reinforcement of existing bias, nein? I feel like an idiot, sighed Tom, sitting on his bed and slumping against the wall. I mean, you and Reginald, the dean will name his firstborn after you both, even if it's a girl. Your English is almost perfect, and I can't master that damn dirty das to save my life. I can ask you to recite Corinthians, and we'll be up until dawn. Reginald knows, what, French, German, and some Russian, grinned Klaus. Bastards, groaned Tom. Bastards, all of you. Look, I had to master Aristotle when all I wanted to do was curl up with Plato. Be patient. At once, it all comes together. It's unpredictable, but inevitable. Tom sat up. You see, it's that kind of stuff. Unpredictable, but inevitable. Where do you come up with that nonsense? It makes sense in a way, but when you stop and think, but that's your main problem, Tommy, smiled Klaus. Some knowledge comes through the head and some through the heart. You use your head to fight your heart, which is foolish and self-destructive. And I don't mean just your academic career. Why would God give us a head and a heart unless they could in time become one? Tom laughed despairingly. <laughs> Again, I'd take my hat off to you if I had one on. I use my head to fight my heart. What does that mean? I mean in concrete terms. But you cannot explain the heart in concrete terms, retorted Klaus. It's like, like you don't speak Latin, but you want to read and understand Virgil in the original. Then you get frustrated at Virgil for not being clear. More concrete. Come on, you're the great Aryan genius. All right. The self and the community. The great war. Individualism versus the collective. I want to do such and such. The community demands from me its opposite. Now, to your mind, this represents an unsolvable problem. Nein, a paradox. Tom smiled. Not really. You do what you want. Ah, but if you bow to none of its desires, you cannot claim the protection of the community. If you want the protection of your father, you must obey at least some of his edicts. If I had the protection of my father, I would be content with a B average. You know what I mean. Luther solved this beautifully. There are seemingly contradictory messages in the Bible. In one place we read, an eye for an eye. In another we read, turn the other cheek. What can this mean? Well, Luther says that an eye for an eye refers to the right of the princes of man to pursue earthly justice, which the individual must submit to. However, when it comes to wrongs against himself, a man must turn the other cheek and forgive. An eye for an eye is for the secular government, and turning the other cheek is for the private citizen. Lovely. What looks like a paradox, neatly resolved. Only by an appeal to the divine, said Tom with the image, which he always got whenever theology came up of his mother lying in her airless room without God. <laughs> you English rationalists, laughed Klaus. How cold runs the blood of a godless universe. This is why your academics and your life will remain so limited. 
Man is far more than earthly reason. Pascal, the heart has its reasons, of which reason knows nothing. We are flesh and feeling mind and passion head and heart. We are in the world, but not just of the world. We are eternal spirits leaning towards the light, but still afraid of our own shadows. We can live neither in the clouds nor the caves. We stand astride the walls of two worlds, the spirit and the flesh, only able to live fully by drinking deeply from both at once. All the contradictions we see in the world and in our minds are reconciled by union with the extrusions of the world spirit into our daily lives. Every riddle is solved by love and spirit. Tom smiled. You know, I can always tell when you start capitalizing words, love, spirit. Give me something more concrete. You want me to prove faith? Sure. But that would require faith on your part. Sorry? Klaus narrowed his eyes. My dear Tom, you have no proof that the evidence of your senses represents reality. A ball falls when you drop it, we all believe that. But we cannot prove that this will always and forever be so, that it must be so. We can only say that when we have dropped it in the past, a ball has always fallen. So, although we have no reason to assume it is an absolute, we have faith that a ball will fall when we drop it. We even have faith that our eyes, which perceive the ball as dropping, are infallible and accurate. What if it is actually rising? And this is my question to you, Tom. If... We can have faith in the little things like dropping a ball. Why not in the big things? The great things, the important things. Klaus's face shone, his hands flew. God, spirit, love, beauty. None of what makes us weep and sing and love can be measured by petty rationality. A girl loves a horse. A veterinarian cuts it open and finds only organs, exactly the same as every other horse. What does the girl love? Innards? No. Spirit. Is it rational, sensible, measurable? No. But, Tom, it is what makes us alive. And that must count for something in any philosophy which considers itself capable of containing all of humanity in its syllogisms. The truth of God as love is no less powerful than that of two and two make four. It is more powerful, I think, by any standard. There was a pause after Klaus's passionate speech. Tom's shoulders rose a little, then sank and squared backwards. Dear Klaus, he smiled. What do you think? Tom reached up and touched the German boy's cheek. Klaus, I think you are wonderfully, beautifully, touchingly insane. Reginald was doing very well. Like Klaus, he had the ability to incorporate all strains of thought and argue them with depth and clarity. Tom plodded along behind them, doggedly shouldering his way through the deep snows they skipped across with such ease. He was viewed with pity by most of the agile minds around him. If Henry Ford had a brother who was dedicated to bringing the horse and buggy back, similar emotions would have flowed. About three weeks before March exams, the three of them decided to go to London for the weekend to relax. Tom desperately needed the break, and Reginald did as well for reasons he would have been loath to admit. Despite his absolute faith in the value of a balanced perspective, he found that subjecting himself to the continued study of opposing viewpoints, even if, as Klaus always argued, they only seemed to oppose each other due to the absence of spirit, had begun to dilute his own sense of being 
of personality, of self. He felt inhabited by a jabbering convention of single-minded people all speaking at the same time, all insisting on absolutes, on being heard, on having the last word. It was very disorienting. His sleep was disturbed by endless inner arguments and the growing sense, in his dreams at least, that his eyes were becoming less human and more insect-like, with many eyes erupting from his single wet orbs. These dreams were, truth be told, less than pleasant. Reginald did not submit them to Klaus's examination because he was sure that the Germanic view would be that these dreams represented his petty resistance to union with both union and non-union, teleologically speaking, anyway. One Friday afternoon, the boys cut classes and took a train into Victoria Station. When they emerged, the bustling life could not help but remind them that there was a vast social world beyond their books and rarefied intellectual stratosphere. It was a comfort to both Tom and Reginald, though they could see Klaus looking at the scurrying, overburdened porters, plodding poor and crying children with anthropological curiosity, and knew that he was turning them over in his mind, inserting and removing them into various categories, seeing where they fit in the general evolution of the world spirit. However, they decided to work on earthly spirits, as Tom called them, for a time, and forbade the discussion of any abstract topics. They went to Quentin's club, Reginald, for a moment, resenting that he had to scrabble for a hated scholarship while Quentin kept his membership, sat in the vast rust-brown leather chairs and played the old undergraduate game of guessing what each man around them did based on appearance alone. A young Labour MP tried to involve them in a discussion of unemployment and the concomitant need for the nationalization of key industries for the sake of the national good, but Reginald reminded them that they had sworn to avoid abstract topics, and the number of capitals embedded in the MP's arguments were too many to count. Tom was tempted to argue that paying out-of-work men unemployment benefits was akin to bribing them to accept society as it was, but decided against it, partly because it would arouse too much disagreeable debate, and partly because the word unemployment is a notoriously difficult linguistic challenge to the mildly drunk. After the club, they wandered downtown to see if they could get any cheap tickets for a stupid comedy. Tom was very emphatic on the last point. Nothing dealing with class conflict, socialism, communism, revolution, capitalist perfidy, robber barons, fascism, the healthy earthiness of peasant life, the thin-nosed unreliability of middle-class intellectuals, or the glistening muscles of hearty factory workers. Nothing where the poor sing or suffer. Nothing where women drag their young across the snow or gaze through a window at a meal of a wealthy family. Nothing where a fat factory owner picks out pretty female workers for forced affairs. Nothing where a landlord throws anyone out. Nothing where anyone suggests that farmers should barter instead of using money. Nothing where anyone cries in front of a sympathetic but unmoved banker. Nothing where an offensive fat man lectures the poor on the virtues of self-reliance. Let's see something by... Oscar Wilde or Noel Coward, nothing serious. So it was agreed they were to become conscious bourgeois, at least for the afternoon. Klaus found this acceptable as long as they remained conscious of their role-playing. They were crossing the Strand about five o'clock when something quite extraordinary happened. There was an odd noise, a distant slithering sort of rumble, and the street seemed to clear of its own accord. There was the high keening of a battered bugle. Look, 
cried Tom, grabbing Reginald's collar. I say, protested Reginald, turning around. His jaw dropped. A line of horsemen were gathering at the end of the street. A chilly gust of spring wind blew down the empty road, causing bunched newspapers to come apart like snowballs hurled against a wire. Uh, let's flee, said Tom. Klaus held up his hand. We wanted to get away from the university. Here we are. Something will happen. Something we will remember. Reginald scowled. Yes, but go if you choose, interrupted Klaus. I'm staying. The brothers stood irresolute. I say, shouted an officer from the far end of the street, drawing his sword and waving it. Clear off, you lot. He has a rather unfortunately large mustache, said Reginald. Tom shook his head. I didn't want this on the stage. Why would I want it in my face? This decision is beyond us, said Klaus, his eyes glazing over with foreordained rapture. Spirit has placed us here. And feet might remove us, muttered Tom, his shoulders hunching of their own accord. They turned, and a wide column of ragged men came around the corner. They moved slowly. They did not sing. They carried no banners. They walked arm in arm. And Tom suddenly remembered childhood games of British Bulldog, but with snipers this time. "'Clear off, you fools!' cried the officer from behind them. Klaus raised his head, petific like a saint before an inquisitor. The men came closer. There was something awful, implacable about their slow, steady steps. Tom squinted. A running man can be diverted. A marching man must be cut down, he thought. Another trumpet rang out, this time from behind them. Horses snorted and stamped impatiently. The officer cupped his hand round his mouth. You men must disperse. You cannot be allowed to pass. Your petition will be read in Parliament tonight. You have been heard. I urge you to respect the rule of law. Nothing can come from a riot but the disgrace of your cause. The men did not slow perceptibly. Tom could see a few of them hesitating, perhaps some in the back slithered away, but those in the middle were swept along. Some part of Tom, even in this possible extremity, strained to understand. Some of the men's faces were afire with hatred. Some were indifferent, swept along by the hatred of the others. Some were excited. Most were afraid. An arm at the front was raised. As it fell, the flowing carpet of ragged men surged forward, shouting with one voice, Jobs! Reginald flinched. Klaus leaned forward, his fingers curling as if trying to feed a wild animal. The men continued their forward march, and behind the three young men there was a row of clicks as rifles were cocked. "'Good Lord, they can't be shooting!' cried Reginald, turning back and forth between the soldiers and the protesters. "'A whiff of grape-shot,' said Tom. "'Come on, boys, let's get out of the line of fire.' "'You do not think it is our war?' asked Klaus." Tom shook his head. It's not the British way. We write petitions, boycott goods, and blockade countries. This is all too French. It is the new world, said Klaus, and Tom's heart sank. The capitals were back. The column of men was close now, no more than sixty, seventy feet. The street was filled with stirring papers, random garbage. 
Wide-eyed faces stared from open windows, hands to mouths. Crows flapped down on the cornices, on top of the buildings. "'We already have your demands!' shouted the officer, trying to control his horse. "'Bloodshed will not help your cause. We have our orders. You cannot pass!' There was no returning cries from the men, and Tom felt all of a sudden, with a terrible shock, that jobs were not on these men's minds. It was something else, something which couldn't be diffused. "'What section of the poor are they?' he wondered. "'Certainly there are many millions without jobs who have stayed at home today.' "'Come on, you idiots!' he cried, retreating up some steps to just outside the lobby of a block of flats. "'Save it for the essays!' Klaus remained rooted where he was, his hand still repeating that vague come-hither gesture. Reginald looked up at Tom's scorn and fear warring in his eyes. Even brothers who do not get along know what each other is all about. Come on, mouthed Tom. Reginald looked at Klaus, then up at Tom. His eyes were wide and Tom could read them without effort, from some place deep in his spine. In his brother, sensible British empiricism warred with magnetic German idealism. The first line of men stopped about twenty feet from Reginald and Klaus. Tom could see the effect on those bringing up the rear. There were about eight hundred men in the street with rounded brown caps. It was like looking at a river of cobblestones. The end of the column had not been reached. It still flowed around the corner, about three hundred feet back. Those at the front of the line hesitated, eyeing the soldiers, the horses, the raised muskets. Those in the rear continued. A few men at the front broke away and fled to either side. One ran up the stairs Tom stood on, glancing at him with apologetic brown eyes before racing into the lobby of the flats. A couple of men turned at the front of the crowd, shouting, Slow down! Or go back! Or hold up! But those in the rear continued to march forward, and the men at the front began to stumble back. One went down, swallowed up by the inexorable cobblestone tide. Men began cycling in and out of the front rows, desperate to avoid being the first in line against the soldiers. Klaus threw his arms wide, leaning forward, looking for all the world like a conductor about to tap an unemployed chorus into song. "'Come on, Reggie!' shouted Tom, his heart hammering. In the periphery of his vision he seemed to see the crows all leaned forward as one. Reginald did not look up. He skulked a little behind Klaus, his shoulders hunched, his head down and forward. He stole a glance behind him at the soldiers. The officer barked an order. A glitter of light rippled along the row of soldiers as rifles were raised. The churning mass of men at the front of the row, the foaming edge at the head of a brown river, was being pushed forward and was only forty feet from the soldiers. The voices of men began to rise, to cry out, panic at gorging their throats. There were a few genuine screams, which, like the cry of an infant, electrified the passions of the street. The crows ruffled their feathers. Across the street, a mother pulled her protesting children back from the window, slamming the rust-red shutters closed. In a shadowed window next door, an old woman crossed herself and turned away. Two young men on a roof shouted down at the surging, out-of-controlled crowd, "'Turn back, you fools!' But there was no stopping the tide. Men were still coming around the corner. An old physics problem popped into Tom's mind. An unstoppable force, an immovable object. 
there was a deafening series of cracks, and another smaller ripple of light ran along the row of mounted soldiers as their rifles discharged. Cracking echoes bounded around the street. The crows rose as one, but did not fly away. They lifted, spread, and then circled slowly over the street as men exploded into a boiling mass of sheer terror. A river, damned, rises, and then is no longer a river, but just a confused spread of water, seeking escape in every direction. Tom lost sight of his brother, who had brown hair, and was quickly lost in the roiling storm of mud-colored coats and waving arms. He could see Klaus, the blonde hair was unmistakable, being tossed through the crowd, a great grin on his face, making no resistance to wherever he was going. They'll all turn back now, thought Tom, wanting to throw himself into the careening mass of bodies in search of his brother, but knowing that he would be lost and likely knocked down immediately. But more men began piling into the street. Why are they coming? thought Tom frantically, his head pounding with excess blood. The dissolving column of men was almost at the hooves of the horsemen. Tom saw one young lad take off his cap, throwing a look at the officer as if to say, sorry about the mess, before being pulled down by another random stampede. The soldiers fired into the sky once more. The echo rebounded, and Tom suddenly realized what the problem was. Those around the corner don't know where the shots are coming from. They heard the shots as coming from behind them and surged forward, dooming the men at the front. The horses whinnied, the sound piercing the general shouting. The crows lowered their flight. Tom could almost imagine their black tongues licking their beaks. He held his hands to his head, his mouth wide, frantically scanning the crowd. Where the hell is my brother? A number of men were scrambling up the steps. Tom grabbed them by the shoulders and pushed them into the lobby, then reached out and helped more up. The wild terror of the crowd seemed like an undertow of sorts. Men climbing up the steps often had other men hanging from their legs, their backs. Tom tried to get as many out of the street as possible. One man's hand flailed at him, a ring catching him, on the forehead, stinging blood ran into his eyes. As he wiped his brow, he glanced up and saw that the line of soldiers seemed slightly thinner. Suddenly a soldier went down, throwing his arms up in an almost comical fashion. The officer with the huge mustache, almost standing up in his saddle, his face contorted with strain and indecision, barked out another order, and the soldiers reined in their horses, moving back slowly. Thank God, thought Tom. The street seemed like an abscess which had to be drained, and by retreating the soldiers were relieving some of the pressure. The officer must have also recognized that the gunfire was only adding to the confusion and terror, for no more shots came. Through the strange, coincidental alchemy of mob thought, the tide was at last beginning to turn back. The idea of danger ahead, safety behind, had spread enough that slowly, and at first almost imperceptibly, the crowd began to return from whence it had come. Suddenly, Tom saw Reginald. He was against the far wall of the street, obscured by a wall of men's backs. Something was going on. Tom craned his neck forward as if the inch or two would make all the difference. A back convulsed. Reginald's hair flopped backwards and a spray of blood rose into the air. Something very primeval rose in Tom's breast. His eyes narrowed, and he noted a yellow shutter above Reginald's head. 
Then he threw himself down and forward into the crowd, his hands charged ahead of him like pincers, slapping and pinching and gouging and pulling whoever barred him from his brother. Returning blows thudded into him, but it made no difference. A man threw himself on Tom's back, but Tom shrugged him off, stamped on his hip and surged forward, keeping his bloodied eye on the yellow shutter. After no more than a few minutes, he came to the place. From behind, he grabbed a man's neck, feeling the hot flesh under his fingers, dragged him back and threw him down. A part of him, a rather new part of him, wanted to kneel down and choke the last life out of the bastard, but a grim crunching sound diverted his intent, and he saw, through shifting, kicking legs, his brother go down, curling into a fetal position, his hands over his genitals, his face trying to burrow into his chest. "'Goddamn tough!' shouted a man. "'Give him what for!' cried another, kicking Tom's brother in his rounded, prostrate back. An even blacker pit opened up in Tom's chest. He threw himself forward, through the men, tearing at their hair, their ears. His muscled rower's arms had some impact. The men parted for a moment, confused. But then a huge man simply stepped forward and pinned Tom's arms by his side. Tom jerked his head from side to side, straining his shoulders to free his arms. But the man, probably a miner, had a laborer's strength that vastly outmatched that of an amateur athlete. "'Easy, my son,' growled the man. Tom threw back his head. He felt the salt of tears mix with the salt of blood. "'He's an, an expert!' There was a pause in the circle of thwarted, vengeful men. Reginald's head lolled on the ground, thick red spittle drooling from his mouth. "'He's an expert!' shouted Tom, willing himself to stop struggling in the bare man's embrace. He's studying history and economics. This, there, you have no work. He's trying to solve the problem. You must let him. He is your friend. Don't be, don't be like, when there's famine, don't go out and kill all the farmers or there's no hope for any of us. The men frowned. Tom took a deep breath. Where the hell did that come from? How do you know, Toff? demanded one of them. He's my brother. Another scowled and spat. Your fucking commie brother or your family brother? Family! A sudden shuddering laugh ran through the man holding Tom, lifting his feet off the ground a little. Well, fuck me, but he's got a brave brother. Lift him up. Two men leaned down and hauled Reginald up off the ground. Lean him in, said the huge man. The men leaned Reginald forward. His head lolled and ran against Tom so that their foreheads pressed together. So, my son, said the huge man, leaning forward, are you a friend of the working man? Yes, yes, whispered Reginald, nodding slowly. Tom's head, pressing against his, nodded as well. Then you be sure you stay a friend of the working man, and if you break faith with us, then your life will be broken from above. You've caught this. There was a pause. Reginald nodded slowly. Tom's head echoed. Some sort of signal must have been given, or perhaps it was the approach of the soldiers because Reginald was suddenly thrust into Tom's arms just as Tom was released. He staggered back under the dead weight of his brother, but held on to him. The men around them turned and scattered. Slowly, Tom sat Reginald down against a wall. The yelling in the street was dying down. Tom pulled out a handkerchief and gingerly wiped Reginald's face. He stole a look over his shoulder. Most of the men were gone. A few lay prone, 
One cradled his arm in his lap, sitting and weeping. Another crawled forward, crying out with each advance. And... And... Tom blinked and wiped his eyes, unable to believe. Klaus stood in the middle of the street, shaking his head slowly. Klaus! shouted Tom. Klaus! There was no response. Enraged, Tom picked up a pebble and threw it at him. It struck his cheek, and Klaus raised an arm to rub the welt, turning his head. Klaus! shouted Tom. He shook his head more rapidly, then ran over to them. Mein Gott! he shouted. Is he all right? I don't know. Go get a doctor. No, his injuries could be internal. We have to get him to a hospital. Where is the closest? I, I don't know. I will go and find out. Make sure that he is not moved. Klaus leapt up and ran away. Tom suddenly burst into tears and leaned his head in towards his brothers. Their foreheads touched again. A crow croaked and landed in a black flurry of flapping, about ten feet away. Tom raised his head, saw it gazing at Reginald, and threw a pebble at it. He did not hit it, and it did not move. <laughs>